This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Today, an entrepreneur from Denver joins us to talk about sexual harassment in the tech startup community. She pulled her company's involvement with a venture capital firm a couple of weeks ago. It was after one of its partners was accused of making inappropriate comments and advances to some female entrepreneurs. She says the incident has made her re-examine how she handles sexism when she experiences it on the job. Lee Mayer is CEO of Havenly, an online interior design company. And Lee, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. A few weeks ago, venture capitalist Justin Callback left his firm, Binary Capital. Several women had come forward to say he did things like send inappropriate text messages. There were also accusations that he tried to sleep with women whose companies he was considering investing in. Um, Binary had backed your company, Havenly. But just to be clear, are you one of the accusers reported in the media? I am not. Okay. And, And we should say that Callback is currently on your board, but you've asked him to leave. Uh, yes, Justin has been um, a board advi- observer for us for a couple of about a year and a half. And, and he initially de- denied the allegations, but later said in a written statement, I have made many mistakes over the course of my career. To say I'm sorry about my behavior is a categorical understatement. He went on to say, the power dynamic that exists in venture capital is despicably unfair. The gap of influence between male venture capitalists and female entrepreneurs is frightening. And I hate that my behavior played a role in perpetrating a gender-hostile environment. So, um, quite a big statement. You didn't face sexual harassment from him, but I understand you've seen it other times in your career as a tech founder. What kinds of things do you hear or experience that you'd say are happening because you're a woman that might not happen to a man? I mean, I think, obviously, it's always hard to tease out what's happening because you're a woman versus, you know, the the stage of company or the type of company you are. Um, I think fundamentally, if you talk to me or other female founders, you'll start to hear commonalities in our stories, um, things that we're asked, for example, our family life, our love life, um, potentially some um, potentially uncomfortable, sometimes crossing the line situations when you go to drinks with the funder or an investor or potential investor. Some of those things seem to be somewhat unique to either female founders or at least the female founders I know. Um, And I think one of the more interesting things that I've seen is also a lot of research around how potentially investors talk to women versus how they talk to men and what they ask for from women, even in terms of business metrics, over and above what they ask for from men. Now, again, really hard to see that when, when you're talking about just me, one data point, right, sitting in a room alone with an investor. But it's sort of interesting now to see the research around it. How do you do research on something like that? So, you know, there have been a number of a number of different um, studies that have come out recently where people have sat in or recorded conversations between investors and entrepreneurs and tried to abstract the differences between how an investor, potentially even unconsciously, oftentimes in those cases, talks about a female-run business versus a male-run business. And now, again, you know, there are confounding factors to that, right? It could be that females typically, um, at least in the last five years, have historically started a particular types of companies. So they tend to be more e-commerce-focused or consumer-focused, and maybe that's the reason. But there does seem to be a difference. And it kind of bears itself out in the numbers, right? So female founders are funded less. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. Um, And so clearly there's something going on. As long as you believe that women and men are generally equal in capability, there's got to be something there, right? 
Can you give me an example of a question that you may have gotten that you suspected was because you're a woman? Yeah, like, when am I going to have babies? Like, that's not something that people normally – it doesn't seem like that's something that I should be getting asked when I'm trying to pitch a business for mm. investment dollars. Um, and, you know, when I talk to my male friends, it's very rare that they say that someone in a, you know, first-stage investor meeting has asked them when they're going to have children, for example. Hmm. I've heard people in Colorado say the tech scene in Denver and Boulder is much more collaborative and friendlier to female entrepreneurs than Silicon Valley. Do you see a difference in how you're treated in these two places? And do you experience sexual harassment in Colorado specifically? So I think, you know, one of the things that I love about Denver is it is, and, and Boulder and the ecosystem here, is it's way friendlier. You know, certainly some of the hard edges that you hear about um, in New York or San Francisco seem to be blunted or at least smoothed here. That being said, I mean, it's it's still got, you know, some of the, I think, endemic problems that you find across across the country, I'd imagine, when it comes to a really subjective arena, which is investment dollars from venture capitalists. Um, I'll be honest, I think while sometimes, um, sometimes certainly I find people are more supportive and certainly come across very helpful, um, when it comes down to dollars, you know, it's not like Colorado is beating Silicon Valley in terms of percentage of companies that are funded by venture capital. Um, so again, you know, I think I'm a huge fan of the ecosystem. I think we have to be honest about what we are and aren't doing. What do you do in situations where you feel like someone's making an advance? You know, that's something I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of weeks, as you can imagine. So I think anyone with any level of self-awareness probably, you know, when, when you come into a situation like this or you find yourself in the middle of sort of a news cycle like this, you start to think about how you reacted in the past. And I think fundamentally, people have different approaches, right? Some people will be fairly outspoken. Um, in the past, you know, my approach has been smile, try to avoid um, getting into any sort of situations where I'm, I'm ruining sort of the ego of the person and try and escape from the situation as elegantly as possible and you know, at least keep my head down, maybe laugh about it with my friends over a cocktail later. But effectively, my philosophy has always been keep your head down, keep your eyes on the prize. You know, the best way that I as a woman can sort of help the ecosystem um, understand the value of women in entrepreneurship, I felt was to be as successful as I possibly could be um, and help provide jobs for women, my company's majority women, um, and hopefully mentor and advise and maybe even invest in later um, more and more female entrepreneurs. You mentioned um, man ha asking you if you were going to have a baby. Um, and would you say that's sexual harassment or sexism? And does it really matter sussing that out? I mean, I think I, I definitely, you know, I don't want to put labels on it. It doesn't sound like sexual harassment to me. I think it's just, you know, the question was, what do you get asked when you're a female that you might not get asked when you're a male? And I think there is a difference. Um, how that then turns into some sort of bias, whether implicitly or explicitly, I think is still yet to be determined. Um, I've certainly, again, personally, but I also know many women have found themselves in situations where they're dealing with romantic advances from, for example, uh, an investor or a partner or something of that sort, um, someone that you would like, prefer to see in a professional context. And that, I think, is where you start to cross the line, right? 
I understand you still wear your wedding ring to some meetings, even <laughs> though you recently got divorced. Does it work as a deterrent to these kinds of situations? I think it does for me. I'm, You know, some of these things are, you do funny things to try and make yourself feel more comfortable. Um, and that doesn't mean, by the way, that, you know, I, I want to be clear, the majority of men that back me, fund me, are friends with me, support me, advise me, are incredibly supportive. And fundamentally, most of my promoters have been men. So I am by no means trying to dismiss an entire gender. But sometimes, you know, when you find yourself in, in uncomfortable situations or a situations where you might be uncomfortable, you sometimes do things that are, you know, make you feel better. So whether it's wearing a wedding ring or some other women talk about sort of wearing more um, manly or or less feminine clothing, um, wearing less makeup, you know, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, we all do our little little pieces to make sure we stay um, on this side of the border. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Lee Mayer, CEO of Havenly. It's an online interior design company based in Denver. We're talking about sexual harassment in the startup community. Mayer's company recently cut ties with a venture capital firm that was after one of its partners was accused by female entrepreneurs of a pattern of inappropriate behavior. Mayer wasn't one of them, but she's experienced harassment in her work. How are you rethinking how you've approached these situations in the past in light of this scandal with Justin Callback and Binary? So I think that that's actually been a little bit of something that I've thought about quite a bit. I think in the past I've sort of stayed in the background on a lot of these issues. I've I've wanted to be an entrepreneur, not as much a female entrepreneur. But frankly, I've been impressed by, I think, the bravery of some of the women coming forward and and saying, you know, things were not right, whether it was with him or, or a number of the other men um, across the ecosystem that were sort of pointed to over the last couple of weeks. Um, and it makes you think that maybe maybe I should use my voice a little bit more um, and be a little bit more outspoken about instances in which I either I personally or someone I know has faced some sort of sexism. Um, because ultimately, like, one of the things that I thought was interesting was how over time, um, when these things sort of go unnoticed, it can really sort of snowball into something that's a lot bigger and affects a lot more people than just one person or one company. Do you think you'll speak up next time? I I would like to think. I mean, again, it depends on the context, right? You know, there there are times where it's the right time and it's so egregious that it must be done. And there are times where it's far more subtle. And, you know, in many cases, some of the um, perpetrators of the acts may not even know. I mean, that's, that's sort of the nature of the beast a little bit, too. These revelations about Justin Callback come soon after the news about Uber, which fired about 20 employees over an investigation that found hundreds of incidents of sexual harassment. More recently, just last week, another tech mentor resigned after admitting he made unwanted advances toward several women. Uh, He wrote a blog post called I'm a Creep. (laughs) where he basically admitted to doing what the women had said he did. Um, That was Dave McClure of a group called 500 Startups. And you'd also gotten money from them, but McClure wasn't on Havenly's board, so he didn't have his close ties. Are these incidents bringing female entrepreneurs like yourself together? And do you think this issue is reaching some kind of tipping point? So I think I've been heartened over the last couple of weeks by the incredible outpouring of support for many of these women that have come forward for us, um, not only from women, 
But actually, and maybe most impressively for men, um, many of my other investors locally and otherwise have been tremendously supportive. Um, And I think um, many of them have always been aware of this issue and have always been supportive. But I think the broader awareness is really, really helpful. Um, I think it it does make you feel like there's a little bit of power in numbers. It's a lonely game sometimes to come forward and say, hey, like, you know, this isn't really fair. This isn't really the way I want it to be. Um, and so having having sort of these stories come forward and, and these this awareness come to be, I think, is a really powerful thing. To go back to the scandal we talked about, um, the venture capitalist Justin Callback remains on Havenly's board. Um, so I guess that means you haven't completely cut ties with Binary yet. Sorry. he's Yeah, no, he is not necessarily on our board any longer. Justin, I believe, has stepped down from Binary Capital as well. Okay. Okay. Yes, he has stepped down from mm-hmm. there. I wonder, this might be a bit of an uncomfortable question, but have you ever seen a woman take advantage of their gender with funders? I mean, look, I think that, the, you know, some of this is trying to understand um, what you can and cannot do within the context that you're given. Um, and whether or not it's, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I am a woman and thus I stick out a little bit more and I have a, a platform that I may not have as a man um, or, you know, something of that sort. Um, but you see men doing it too, right? You know, men sort of, you know, and, and, and I think that that's okay. Like, it's okay to use what you have to try and sort of further the interests of your company and your employees. Um, I think where you start to get a little stuck is when, you see sort of institutional or systemic biases, whether it's gender or economic circumstances or, you know, racial bias, that kind of thing. Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lee Mayer is CEO and co-founder of Havenly, an online interior design firm based in Denver. We talked about sexual harassment in the tech world, given the recent resignation of a couple of venture capitalists who had funded Havenly. One was on the company's board um, until the sexual harassment revelations prompted Mayer to cut ties with him. They've asked him to leave the board. Almost half of Colorado's workers can't get a retirement plan through their work. For people in small businesses, it's 80 percent. Those statistics alarmed enough state lawmakers this spring that they pushed unsuccessfully for a state program to help workers put away money for their old age. Across the nation, savings rates are dismal, and not just for retirement. Now one entrepreneur has developed an app to encourage more people to save, and if they do save, they get a chance to win a lottery. University of Colorado alumna Lindsay Holden created the savings app Long Game. More than 70,000 people have signed up so far, and Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's say I come to you and I want to save some money. How does the app work? How does the system work? So um, Long Game's an app. So you download the app and um, you sign in with your bank account and that creates another checking account for or a savings account for you. And so it's quite simple, really easy onboarding, takes about 30 seconds. And then now you have a separate savings account that you access through the Long Game app that rewards you with lottery games um, for saving. So essentially the receipt for my savings deposit is also a lottery ticket? Uh, it's it's similar, so it's it's pretty it's great because we have the mobile platform to interact with. So as you're saving, um, over time we reward you with virtual currency, which is in our app it's called coins, 
and you can use those to play lottery games. And the games are all some fun kind of reveal of, you know, a game of chance. So we have a weekly drawing that uh, we do every Thursday, and then we have a lot of um, instant win games similar to Scratchers but virtual. What are some of the prizes you might get for doing this? You can win um, anywhere from $0.10 to a $1 million on our platform. Wow. And we'll go into more detail in a minute, but you're working with a traditional bank to make this happen. Uh, The savings are insured by the FDIC, and the money to fund the lottery prizes also comes through your relationship with the bank. When I think of lotteries, I think it's probably not something a lot of financial advisors were, would steer their clients towards. I wonder if you think it's at all a bad message to tell people, hey, save more money, but then play the lottery. Um, <laughs> so I think, um, yeah, I, I, so we, you know, savings is really difficult. Um, and so what we're, to, what we're doing, um, so, many, so many Americans are financially unprepared, right? So 63% of Americans don't have five, can't cover a $500 unexpected expense. Mm. And so what we've done is we've taken something that's really fun, playing the lottery, and applied it to, you know, saving, which is, we hope, helping people feel good about their finances, that they want to engage with their finances. And we're giving them a little bit of a leg up, showing them it's not so hard to do, and then they're actually building their wealth over time. Why do you think people don't put away more money into savings? Is it because they just can't afford to do that? Or are there other reasons? Um, Sure. I mean, it is, it's, you know, sometimes people don't have a lot of income, but I think you can always find a little bit to put away. Um, We generally, I think, are a little bit avoidant about thinking about our finances because um, a lot of times it's not the best situation. It's a little bit uncomfortable. And so what we're trying to do with the app is just make it really fun and easy to engage with your finances. And you call the concept behind this behavioral economics. What does that mean? Um, so actually, the, the concept is prize-linked savings, and it's not a new concept. So um, if you look uh, even to the, to the UK, is probably the best example of where this is implemented today. There's something called premium bonds. It's a reduced interest rate bond where when you buy the bond, you get entered into a raffle where you can win $2 million dollars. Um, and they have over $50 billion saved through that mechanism. And um, this is something that, you know, we've just taken this idea and then put it into an app and made it really simple and uh, a little bit more engaging to use. You have 70,000 people using this app. Describe your average user. Who are they? So our users are geographically spread out across the country. Um, we have almost entirely the millennial uh group is using our app. So between the ages of 18 and 35, and um, they, they're they growing their accounts on average about $60 a month, which is, is pretty significant. Why do you think millennials in particular are attracted to it? Is it the, so the fact that just, it's an app? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say they're very used to engaging with their phone. Um, they like to play mobile games, and they're comfortable banking um, using an app. What's the average size of a savings account? Um, So like I said, uh, you you know, users are growing their accounts at about $60 a month right now. So you don't have a a sense of the average size, you know, of someone who saved money or folks who have saved money. So it's hundreds of dollars. um, And it just depends on when you join the app. So because, you know, we're growing, we have, you know, people of different ranges of, of, of time ranges of using our app. If I'm a depositor 
am I at all risking my money with a lottery? Can I lose money? No. So um, on long game, none of your money is at risk. 100% of the money that you put into long game is going into an FDIC-insured savings account, and you can withdraw it at any time. Um, And you do actually earn 0.1% interest on that money as well, in addition to to the prizes that you could win. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're speaking about a new app that offers people the chance to win a lottery if they save money. Lindsay Holden, an alumna of the University of Colorado, developed the app Long Game. What's the biggest prize you've awarded so far? We have awarded um, multiple thousand dollar prizes. So that's the largest prize that's been won so far. And could it grow? Absolutely. Um, The more people we have playing, the better the odds are that someone's going to win. And what are the odds of a win at this point? Um, So, I I mean, you win something on the app, um, you know, two-thirds of the time, whether it be more virtual currency to play or cash. Um, And, you know, obviously, just like a lottery, there's different odds for each uh, prize amount. And where does the money come exactly to fund the prizes? So like you were saying before, we partner with a bank, and um, banks generally make between 3 and 5% on your savings account. They turn around and loan that out to businesses and as mortgages. And um, so what we've done is we're just acquiring deposits for that bank, so they pay us for the deposits. And then we turn around and we fund our operations and, and put that money towards prizes to encourage uh, our users to grow the deposit base more. Now, you're only paying one-tenth of a percent interest nationally, according to the website Go Banking Rates. The average on a one-year CD is twice that, just over two-tenths of a percent. Wouldn't most financial advisors tell the saver to put their money in an account with a higher interest rate? Um, so if you look at uh, the the major top 10 banks, you'll see the, the average interest rate is more on 0.01%. So it's very low in savings accounts generally. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the users that we are attracting really are using those type of savings accounts to save money. And um, I think probably financial advisors would advise you to, to do what works for you. So, you know, we've built a really engaging, fun way to engage or uh, to, to save money. And we hope that, you know, that helps people, and it actually has been showing to help people save a lot more. And so I think that's positive. Do you have any evidence that it will lead people to a long-term habit of saving money? Um, so I, we believe it does. We've we've been showing that people are growing their accounts, that they're saving money. And um, I think what's so interesting about what we've built is you have this positive interaction when you're using the app. That's fun, and you know you can win, and that's feels very compelling. And then over time, you look at your account and you say, hey, look, I've, I've saved $500 now. I feel like I'm more in control. I feel like this is easy. You've raised more than $6 million from venture capitalists who are backing this. I'm assuming they're not investing that kind of money to attract people saving small amounts of money. What's the ultimate payoff for them? Um, so I, I, you know, I think what's so interesting about Long Game as a company is that we are building a mass market savings product. So over half of the half of Americans play the lottery. It's absolutely enormous. It's a seventy billion dollar industry, and um, on average, they spend close to six hundred dollars a year on this. And so I think most, you know, financial apps are kind of 
geared towards this financial optimizer type. Um, It's not a very large portion of the population. In reality, most people are avoidant of their finances. And so we're taking this mechanism that people know and love and applying it towards something that they are actually very avoidant of. And so we feel that we have a lot larger um, market appeal than most financial ops out there. And our investors agree with that. Has this changed, I wonder, your personal approach to savings or the way you think about it? Of course. I mean, we're working on this every day, and I am more aware of of my own finances and also just aware of my own uh, psychology when it comes to finances. And I found that I have been avoidant in certain ways. Um, and uh, it's it's actually really insight. It, it gives me a lot of insight to think about our users and think about um, people's feelings around money. And back to the investors, where are they going to ultimately make money in this? So, uh, you know, as we grow, of course, um, the, 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 the money that we're getting paid from the bank is also growing. But what's, I think, really exciting about us is we have a really engaged, high-touch relationship with our users. So the average long-game player p- plays 24 games a week. That means they're opening the app daily. Um, and so we're able to have, um, you know, tons of opportunities in the future to monetize that relationship. Lindsay, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Lindsay Holden is the founder and CEO of Long Game, a San Francisco-based app maker. Four Colorado Rockies will play in tonight's MLB All-Star Game. Third baseman Nolan Arenado is there for the third year in a row. Before he went to Miami for the game, CPR's Open Air visited Arenado in the dugout at Coors Field to hear about how music fits into his game. I'm Nolan Arenado. I play third base with Colorado Rockies. So what is your walk-up song and why did you choose it? Um, it's Sweet Sweet by Travis Scott. I chose it because the beat hits hard. Um, that's kind of my whole thing. I'm really into Trap Scott. The last couple of years, he's came on the scene pretty hot, and uh, I've been all over it. And uh, the music bumps, and it gets me fired up. You know, I like when I walk up songs, like it's kind of like get me in the zone, and that song helps me get there. Get right to you. I can't do no traps. I can't do no lacks. What do you usually listen to when you're training off the field? Mostly rap. Uh, Kings of Leon is my favorite band. I hope it's gonna make you Someone like me. Alt J, Travis Scott, Drake. I'm California, so Kendrick Lamar, all the old school rap. So, who's the best DJ on the team? I am. I play Latin music, I play rap, I'll play rock, I'll play whatever genre everyone wants to listen to, I got it. But not everyone thinks he's the best DJ. Well, back in the day when Todd Helton used to be here, he, I used to play rap and he would get like super angry because I was like a rookie and he didn't want to hear that. So he would like yell at me and then there would be times where I'd play it and be like, who, he'd be like, who played this song? And I'd be like, I don't know, but it would be me. I would just lie because I didn't want him to yell at me anymore. Rocky's third baseman, Nolan Arenado, who shows a little more guts on the field. He'll play in tonight's MLB All-Star Game, along with three other Rockies, including Charlie Blackman. He explains his leadoff song at openaircpr.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah.
The high desert of western Colorado plays a key role in a new novel we'll talk about today. It's about a New York English professor who makes a habit of letting life happen to him instead of choosing his own way. When he reaches his breaking point, he comes to Colorado to simplify his life and eventually finds himself. The book is White Plains. Its author, David Hicks, leads the creative writing program at Regis University in Denver. And David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. Let's talk about your lead character, Flynn Hawkins. He's a guy who never makes a decision, as we said, about what he wants to do with his life. He's good looking and good things seem to come to him. He happens into a career as an English professor. He marries his girlfriend, even though he doesn't really love her. Why did you decide to explore a character like that? Well, it's way too easy to write about a, an active character. So why not write about a <laughs> passive character who uh, needs to get his life together? It's, um, I wrote about this because I think a lot of people are in the situation where they sort of happen into a marriage or they happen into a career. And um, it's... It's potentially devastating for others involved when someone sort of happens into life and uh, he makes a mess of his life. It's, it's, uh, it's my job to depict the mess and all its messiness and then to see if he could face his fears and own up to his mistakes and get his life together because there's a ripple effect of divorce, among other things, that he does. He, he quits his job. He loses, he loses his children to custody and – um, that ripple effect, you know, destroys the family, uh, wrecks his ex-wife, uh, really makes his life, the life of his children pretty bad. So I'm trying to depict that uh, not only through Flynn, but also through uh, writing about other characters' points of view and in, in, in the aftermath. I don't know if authors hate to be asked this, but is any of this autobiographical? Yeah, I think I think we get asked it all the time. I just uh, – <laughs> I, I just um, – I had a 34-stop and 34-day book tour, and probably 33 of them I was asked that. Um, uh, but yeah, the the structure of it is autobiographical. Um, I am from New York. I did move to a mountain town in Colorado. I did get a divorce. I did miss my kids a lot. Um, but having said that, um, the characters and the actions are crafted to to strengthen the conflict in the novel and to just keep ramping up tension the whole way. Instead of um, uh, in my life might have been resolved easily or, or readily, but in the in the book it's got to be maintained throughout the throughout the book. Plus, each chapter is kind of its own short story, right? So maintaining conflict within that short story as well as within the arc of the novel that's important. So it's important to craft it, not just replicate my life, which which is ultimately kind of boring. <laughs> When we first meet Flynn, he's a graduate student in English, and he becomes friends with a professor named James Augustus Faustino. How does that friendship evolve, and what does it tell us about Flynn? Well, he uh, Flynn has lost his dad, and it's something that it doesn't really come up too much for him because he's his family has avoided talking about it, and he himself has avoided facing the ramifications of that loss. And so uh, when we meet Flynn, he is, he's in grad school and he, and he befriends, I suppose, uh, a father figure, a very large man, a Hemingway scholar. And they form a, a pretty much a father-son relationship. But Flynn um, tellingly avoids the true connection that could happen at the end of that story because 
he is more or less avoiding facing the manifestations of his father's death. So he does something at the end that he, he shouldn't do, um, which would have made them closer. And I, I'm, I'm interested in that. I lost my sister when I was young. And I, I find that uh, when we lose someone when we're young, we often it's not it's not a neat process, right? You grieve and then get better. It's usually uh, that manifests itself in strange ways. One of the ways it manifests itself in that is that we could avoid intimacy. We could avoid we could we could want that intimacy. So Flynn lost his father. He wants a father figure, but at the same time, we might avoid that because it's too painful. And what does he do to avoid that? He uh, at the end of of that story or that chapter. Faustino, his his professor's wife, dies. And instead of uh, going to the wake and going to his professor and consoling him, he leaves. He he flees town. Um, it's graduation anyway. The semester's over. But he leaves the area and doesn't contact Faustino after that um, because he he doesn't want to face that. He almost – he can't take the grief. No. The next important relationship in his life is when uh, Flynn is in graduate school. His girlfriend, Rachel, moves in with him. But there are a lot of early signs that things aren't going to work out that well. Uh, tell us about that relationship. Well, he uh, – 9-11 has just happened and he's in the city and uh, Rachel's upstate. And Rachel, after 9-11, uh, says, hey, let's let's get our act together and move in. And he says, OK. And there, there's – there are probably these there there were these moments in the book where he uh, I don't want to equate myself with Chekhov, but there are these moments in Chekhov's stories where a character can almost do something to change, but doesn't, and that's as much of tension as if he as if he were to do something. So Flynn um, shouldn't accede to that because he's doing fine and he doesn't really love Rachel, but uh, he does. And there's a moment even when with Rachel, where Rachel says, you know, that we're fighting all the time. We should probably just end this. And he says, no, no, let's work on it because he wants to do the right thing and make it work. Um, but it's it's a it's a terrible mistake in a way. And it's not Rachel's fault at all. It's his. And that leads to then the, the mess of the, of the novel that follows. They end up married with two children, a boy, Nathan, and a girl, Jane. And at one point, Flynn's, uh, Flynn's teaching a literature class, and one of the students hasn't read the book, and Flynn challenges him. Quoting Socrates, he says, an unexamined life isn't worth living. That seems to pretty much sum up Flynn's own way of life. Is that, re- is that exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. I, I, I rather like it when characters and books uh, say things that they themselves should heed, but uh, they're saying it to someone else. And Flynn needs to examine his life, and he, he does. He's teaching Thoreau, you know, living simply, living true to your ideals, and he's doing quite the opposite of that. So the great irony of that whole chapter, that section, is that he's teaching his students one thing, but he's not living the way he's teaching. As a reader, that can be kind of frustrating. Do you yes. think Flynn's a likable guy? Uh, he's he's likable to me, but uh, there have been readers who have said, you know, I didn't really like him, but then I liked him at the end. Um, I think it's pretty easy to, to write a likable character. Uh, you, you sort of create a misfit and you visit upon that misfit all kinds of pain. I think it's harder to, re- to depict... Uh, authentic and sometimes unlikable character that uh, gets into situations that where you almost want to scream at him, like, what are you doing, you idiot? And it's at the uh, – the Colorado section is actually where he makes he, – he's the 
biggest idiot. And uh, and then he kind of realizes, uh, to me, that's where he becomes the most human and, and the most flawed. And then he becomes the most likable because he sort of faces his idiocy and tries to change. Talk about that Colorado section. What is it about that that's yeah, such he, a turning point? He moves. Um, he kind of makes an ill-fated move to the mountains because um, the a woman he has met uh, lives there and tells him he, she's pregnant. So he kind of wants to do the right thing, but you know, there's no way to do the right thing for everybody in that situation. But he, he moves uh, to be with her and finds himself just bungling. He he's, gets lost in the desert because he can't ride a horse, and he uh, drives in, with bald tires through uh, over mountain passes in four feet of snow and ends up getting snuck, stuck in a snowdrift and almost dying. And so what I want there is to depict how the landscape of the mountains of Colorado, and your listeners know this, how the landscape can mirror back to you your elemental being. The, like the superficial identity is is cut away and there you are. And, and in Flint's case, there is nothing much there because he's been this superficial guy his whole life. Um, so the mountains kind of show him that and that's when he can kind of bottom out in a in a good and bad way and remake his life. I want to talk about Flynn's relationship with his son Nathan, um perhaps his deepest personal relationship. They go to an event called Diamond Dash, the Diamond Dash. Describe what happens. At a Diamond Dash, I don't know if course we do this at Coors Field, but uh they used to do this at Chase Stadium in New York, uh where I used to live and they allow children and their parents and guardians into the baseball stadium after a game through the center field gates where and they walk around the warning track to first base and at first base the kids take off without the parents and run around the bases and it's fun I, I did this with my son when he was I think six or seven and Flynn uh, as he's walking with Nathan around the ballpark he has just been separated from his his wife, and Nathan's really feeling the effect of that. Janie's a little too young at this point, and he takes his son there. And his son, uh, he re- he keeps thinking about times with his son, both good and bad, uh, when he was the primary caregiver for him. And at first base, Nathan Nathan takes off, and Flynn watches him, sort of arrested at first base instead of going to home plate. Watches his son as he kind of just falls into his body and runs really fast and elegantly around the bases for the first time. And Flynn realizes, you know, he's running away from him. He's he's going to become his own person without much influence from Flynn. And that's uh, a key moment in the book uh, because Flynn has to face the effects of leaving his marriage on his son. Just to wrap up, this is your first novel. You helped create a Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing at Regis University that will graduate its first students next January. Did you learn anything while you were writing this book uh, that you can impart to your students? Well, uh, mostly uh, I, I, don't, I co-direct the program with Marty McGovern, but I don't uh, teach in the program, but I, uh, but I do advise all the time. And mostly what I've learned is how much work writing is. I mean, it's this I start the first story, the first chapter in this book was uh, published about fourteen years ago. So it takes a long, long time. It takes a lot of work to revise. Nothing that I've published has been revised fewer than fifty times. So it's just a lot of work. But it seems so effortless. Um, you're writing you. when you're reading it. Thank you. Uh, not true, though. It's just uh, 
it takes a lot of work to to feel to appear effortless. David, thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you, Andrea. David Hicks is the author of White Plains. He's a professor of English and co-director of the Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing at Regis University in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Nothing seems to phase Master Sergeant Israel D.T. Del Toro, Jr. He was severely burned in an explosion in Afghanistan. The Colorado Springs Airman is now a gold medal shot putter and the first fully disabled airman to re-enlist in the Air Force. Tomorrow, he'll receive the Pat Tillman Award for service at the annual ESPY Awards. Tillman is a former NFL player who left football to join the military and was killed in Afghanistan. I sat down with DT in May as he waited to see if he'd made the 2016 U.S. Paralympic team. DT, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me here. You've served in the Air Force around the world from Bosnia to South Korea. A roadside bomb exploded under your Humvee during your second tour in Afghanistan. That was in 2005. Explain what happened. Uh, Well, we're on a mission. Uh, We had orders that there was a high-value target out in the area. So we had to either uh, capture or kill him. So we're out there a couple of days, and the day I got hurt, we were on our way to pick up the other half of our team. And that's when we I, we crossed this creek. And 200 meters after we crossed this creek, I feel this intense heat blast on the left side, and I realized, like, holy crap, we just got hit. People talk about how your life flashes in front of you. You know, I never believed that, but when I got hit, everything slowed down, and I just started thinking of my family, you know, me and my wife are finally going to get married by the church. You know, we we're going to go to Greece for a honeymoon and teach my boy how to play baseball. Then something clicked and I got out of the truck. But when I got out of the truck, I was on fire from head to toe. Mm. And, but I, I realized that creek was behind me. So I tried to run to it, but the flames overtook me and I collapsed and I, and I laid there thinking that I was going to die there, that I had broken my promise that I will always come back, you know, that, that I would not let my son grow up without his dad. And that's when uh, one of my teammates helps me up, and we both jumped into the creek to extinguish the flames. What were your injuries? I looked at myself. I was like, okay, I look. I have all my fingers. I got everything. You know, I, I did feel like my eyebrows were a little singed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but afterwards, after the whole thing, you know, when I woke up from my coma, I received third-degree burns on 80% of my body. You know, I lost my fingers. You know, I have nerve damage on my right foot. You know, they gave me fifteen percent chance to live, uh, and told me I was going to be on rest for the rest of my life and probably not walk again. And you did. I did. You know, I I beat the odds. You know, two months after they told me that, you know, I walked out out of the hospital, walking and breathing on my own. You accidentally saw yourself in the mirror after the explosion. Um, you hadn't wanted to see yourself so soon. What did you think when you looked in the mirror? Throughout my recovery, I never had wished I died until I did. You know, I call that my darkest hour. I saw myself and I broke down. I really did. I really broke down. I wanted to die. I was like, God, at the time I was 30 years old, if I if I think I'm a monster, I was like, what's my uh, three-year-old son going to think? You know, because no father wants his child to be afraid of him. And 
my son meant the whole world to me, you know. He was my entire motivation. Uh, so it was a big fear for me. It really was. You know, I call him my guardian angel, Gary, uh, my therapist, and he's the one that convinced me. He's like, trust me. He's like, all your son wants is his dad. And like I said, it took about almost 40 minutes to get me back into, you know, push that back in my head saying, okay, my son just wants me. It's like, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And when you saw your son, uh, talk about that. It's a great story when you first saw him. Yeah, you know, uh, when I got out of the hospital and I walked into the house, you know, I remember seeing my family members, some of my teammates, and then my wife calling out to my son saying, hey, you know, dad's here. And he comes running out and he stops. And I get scared because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still covered up in bandages and all that. And I'm thinking, it's like, oh, my God, he's afraid. He's afraid. He's not going to want to hold me or anything. But he just tilts his head to the left and says, Papi. And I'm like, yeah, buddy. And he just comes up and gives me the most amazing hug I ever had in my life. I hadn't seen him since August of 2005. You just competed in the Invictus Games, which is an international competition for wounded servicemen and women. And you won gold in shot put for the second time. Invictus means unconquered. And I understand you had never done shot put before. How did you learn? When you're going through recovery, they introduce you to adaptive sports because most of us were athletes at some point. So they introduce you to adaptive sports to kind of get you back out in this society, get you going. And they introduced track and field to me, you know, throwing. You know, it just worked out that I was able to do it. What does it mean to you? What did, did it mean to you to win the gold medal in the Invictus Games? Well, for me, you know, winning that gold was almost too emotional, to, I guess, to explain because it, it just felt so great. It's such an amazing feeling to be there with all these other service members from different countries rooting me on and then my family and strangers rooting me on and be able to, to have them there with me and seeing me win. And seeing me receive that goal was just an amazing feeling. You played team sports like baseball while you were growing up. And I wonder why sports have always played such a key role in your life. Sports have always helped me throughout my journey in life. You know, from losing my parents, team sports were there for me. You know, kept me focused, kept me on what I needed to do. And, you know, my teammates, they were there for me, helped me through my tough times in life. So being able to do sports and know they can still be outside enjoying life is a very uh, comforting thing. Competing with your injuries, living with your injuries can't always be easy. Uh, Is there anything that helps you to stay positive, move forward, keep competing? Uh, The main thing for me that keeps me going is really my son. It truly is my my boy because I want to show him that you know, no matter what happens, if you stay positive, stay motivated, you could overcome whatever obstacles that have come forward. And it's a promise also that I made to my dad uh, before he passed away that I always will take care of my family. And doing that, you know, showing my son that is my way of taking care of my family. DT, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me, ma'am. 
Wounded warrior and athlete Master Sergeant Israel Del Toro Jr. of Colorado Springs. He didn't make the 2016 U.S. Paralympic team, but he won gold at the 2016 Invictus Games. We've posted photos and video of him at cprnews.org. Tomorrow, Del Toro will receive an award for service at the annual ESPY Awards. That's our show for today. Thanks to Brady McNellis, Michael Hughes, Rachel Estabrook, Stephanie Wolf, Michelle Fulcher, and the folks at Open Air who've been producing our baseball stories. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.